What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Active Life Podcast. I'm Dr. Sean Pastuch, and I'm your host. Today's guest is Dana Santos, otherwise known as the Mobility Maker. Dana Santos is a yoga instructor who transformed herself and her career from being a yoga teacher like everybody knows to a certified strength conditioning specialist who works with professional teams, professional athletes from all four major sports and others on how to move better, feel better, and perform better. She speaks at summits like Summer Strong for Sorenex. She speaks at the Perform Better Summits. She's a Perform Better sponsored professional. She has worked with the best of the best in every field that you can think of when it comes to athletics. During this interview, Dana talks not only about what you need to do to become a better athlete and to move better and how you can integrate yoga and breathing and meditation into your daily practice in a practical way. But she also talks about how she got to be who she is in a very, very tactical way. So a lot of people, once you get your CSCS, which is the Certified Strength Conditioning Specialist, um, it's, 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 the certification that you get when you know you want to work with athletes, when you know you want to be a strength coach. Dana didn't get that in order to work with strength coaches. Dana got her CSCS because she was already working with athletes and strength coaches and she wanted to better understand how they think. So she went and learned what she knows they learned, which is an extremely valuable lesson for anybody who's listening to this episode to understand. Additionally, I asked her, how did you get to know all of these athletes? How did you, you know, she works with everybody. And it's how do you get into all of these pro sports working with all these teams? Most people wouldn't even know how to start. And her answer in this episode is extremely simple. It's also extremely practical. The thing about it is it's not easy. It's simple. It's practical. But it's hard. And that's the beauty of it. None of this stuff, once you have the education, guys, for those of you who are health professionals looking to make a way for yourself, none of this stuff that people like myself, that people like Dana, that people like a Rachel Balkovic, who we've interviewed before, that, you know, Jason Layden, who we've interviewed, Mike Cashew, who owns Brute Strength, Adi Cashew, who owns Working Against Gravity, you know, none of these health professionals are so much more educated than you are. They're not. What happens is these health professionals are willing to do the same thing over and over and over again, and then to pivot when that thing stops working. They're willing to put themselves out there. They're willing to do the legwork that it takes just to be told no so you can get the contact of the person who tells you no. So you can reach out again and ask them why not. There's a lot that goes into getting to work with elite athletes. And there's a lot that goes into getting known and respected for the work that you do. And Dana hits home on just how much work she needed to do just to put her toe in the door of professional sports. It's an inspiring story. It's a valuable lesson. 
And it's an episode that I really enjoyed recording that I hope that you guys enjoyed just as much listening to. Um, if you want to make headway in pro sports, if you want to make headway in, in amateur sports, you want to get notoriety, you have to listen to this episode. Now, like always, I'm going to ask you to pay for this episode, but not with your money. I don't ask you for your money. I'm asking you to go to iTunes, to go to Stitcher, wherever you're listening to podcasts, and leave us a review. A five-star rating would be awesome, and a review where you tell people what it is that you love about our podcast. We're going to start reading those reviews on the show. So if you think that you have a review that we need to know about, write it on there. And we're going to be looking for a review or two every week to read during the intro of the show. Until next time, guys, I'm Dr. Sean Pastuge. I'm your host. Here we go. Dana Santos. All right. So Dana Santos, thank you for joining us on the Active Life podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm so glad that uh, you reached out. It's my pleasure. Um, you know, D- Rachel Balkovec is a friend of mine. And when I saw that you were her woman crush Wednesday on Instagram one day, I said, I need to look into who this person is because I find Rachel to be such a um, an inspiring individual with the way that she's kind of forged her way through the strength and conditioning world. Um, and when she has respect for somebody, I always think, well, I should probably find out who that person is and respect them as well. Um, so that's how well, I find you. I appreciate you. that. Yeah, Rachel is fantastic. I mean, I can't say enough uh, good things about her and and just um, her ambition and oh, her intelligence. I mean, her resume is incredible for the age that she is. And, and uh, people out there, if you don't follow her on Instagram, you should because uh, she um, – she is doing amazing things and not just in the strength and conditioning world. I mean, where is she right now? Um, she, she's, uh, she's wrapping up a trip to Laos where she was volunteering yeah. like with, to help a village of kids learn. Yes. So um, I absolutely, I love her. I, I, I do. So I, I'll have to do, I've never done a woman crush Wednesday post, but maybe <laughs> I have to do one and reciprocate because I do love her and it's an honor when she calls me a mentor and, and um, I, because it's, it's been a privilege to, to give her any advice and, uh, and watch her follow it and, and just see her grow and do the amazing things she's been doing. So, well, well, you come highly recommended. <laughs> so, so you got that going awesome. for you, you know, and, and, and you mentioned that she has a, an impressive resume and you have a pretty impressive resume too. I mean, you work with the Orlando magic, You've worked with, if I'm not mistaken, you've worked with some of the Philadelphia Phillies, correct? I uh, so right now in terms of teams that I work, so I've worked with, I've actually worked with. I'm old, Sean. I'm <laughs> really old. So it's been 14 years, and I've worked with um, nearly 50 different professional sports teams, and that's not college sports teams. That's professional sports teams. Um, and when I say that I work with a team, it's the team. It's not just individual players. I have individual players, probably. I, I think I've touched virtually every team in baseball at this point, but um, currently I have contracts. Well, contract. I have ongoing work with the Philadelphia Phillies as a team. So that's my minor league and major league, the Toronto Blue Jays, um, the Atlanta Braves, the, um, the 
Tampa Bay Rays. I'm sorry. The the list sometimes changes, but these guys I've been with for a long time. Actually, I started with the Tampa Bay Rays back in 2006 or seven. So that was a long time ago. The Tampa Bay Lightning, the Orlando Magic, um, the Houston Texans. And, um, and actually, I was just hired um, pretty much yesterday by the Minnesota, uh, Minnesota Twins. So I've never worked with them as a team, but I will be working with them doing a strength camp in a few weeks. So that's that's pretty exciting. That's cool. But, yeah, and so, so when you when you work with these teams, um, yeah. what kind of stuff are you doing with them? And when I when and how frequently? So so when we see stuff on social media, oftentimes there's there's different outfits that say, oh, we're working with the Seattle Mariners, for example. I made that up, you know. And right. and what that means is that they're there for a weekend. They're introducing some topics, and then they're leaving it to their strength and development team to decide if they want to use it for themselves thereafter. I don't Mm -hmm. think that's what you're doing. I think that it's a little bit more in depth. Would you mind going into what you do? Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because I, I mean, I, that's interesting. And I know social media, social media is so weird and I've had a love hate (laughs) relationship with it, but I I think that it's disingenuous when a lot of people are posting things like that. And I work with the team or, um, and, and, you know, I'll get, it's, it's hilarious to me when I'll get like congratulations for people. Like I just did a post that said I was just at the Orlando magic and I, I had people messaging me and congratulating me. I started working with the Orlando magic uh, like four years ago. Um, <laughs> but I just so I'm not, I feel uncomfortable being like, Hey, look at me doing the work that I love. And I want you to, you know, say congrats. It's that's weird to me. It's so awkward and weird. And I know that, you know, it, it grows our following and then it, it increases the people that we can touch and we can share our information with. So there's a certain, that's why I said it's a love-hate thing. We have to do that in order to then be able to put out, like I put out these things called minute mo flows that I like to share with everybody to get them to move and understand that you don't need to put in so much time to just start to move better and move more. Um, and so I want more people to get that information. And if it means occasionally I have to post and say, hey, look at me, I'm working with a team that I worked with for years, but you know, then I'll do it. But I, I, um, it's, but then you have other people who are out there who, you know, every time they do, they have a one hit wonder they're posting. So it looks like they've worked, they're working with tons of teams when the reality is maybe they did a consulting gig here or there. So in terms of the, the, I like to build relationships with the teams that I work with and, um, and how I work with them varies from team to team because it's what, it's what they need from me. Like I don't go in, um, you know, on a soapbox and say, Hey, this is exactly what you need. And I'm going to offer it to you. We work together. Uh, that's why I got my CSDS, not because I wanted to be a strength coach. Um, my husband is, he cracks me up all the time because we'll be working out in the gym and, we have a garage gym and he'll, he'll see me doing something. And he's like, Tana, I thought you were a strength coach. And so it's, it's like a little <laughs> ongoing joke, but it's so that I can understand all the programming and how I can best inter- integrate the work that I do into the programming that the strength coaches do. I don't ever try to come in and change their programs. I try to come in and add value. And so for Tom, some teams that's rehab and recovery and for others, it's maybe it's, um, you know, helping develop better warmups or some teams still just want the, you know, 40 minute to hour long yoga recovery session as its own thing. And that's fine. I, I can do that. It's not what I'm best at at this point. I mean, I've been doing that forever. And that's what I came in kind of doing with the yoga stuff, traditional yoga. And it's, 
it's not that I won't do it, but I know that I can better serve them when I can integrate and, and have a better understanding of what they're already doing and make it more efficient. Because working in professional sports, there isn't a lot of time. There are so many demands on the athletes. The coaches are trying to manage so many different players. Um, and trying to fit another thing into the schedule is so hard. So for me, it's like, okay, where can I add value and fit in most efficiently in different ways in your program? And that's usually how I work with them. And now with some teams, it's only like um, coming in and doing camps throughout the year at different times, but then providing, you know, a library of videos that they put up on their um like they'll have like an intranet or like a strength engine or whatever it is, their platform that they use to share strength and conditioning programs with the players. They'll put my stuff up in on there available to the players. So that could be, um, you know, one way that I do. It. And it is one way that I do it. But then other teams will have me on retainer all year long. And so then I'll fly out, you know, whenever they have home stands or home games um, or it, it's just, it, it really runs the gamut. Well, I think you made some really valuable points in there that, that I want to make sure we pull out for people to hear. Because the first one is you're in this to develop a relationship, not to exploit a relationship. So what I mean by that is when you're, when you're working with somebody who is of influence and a professional team, professional athletes are of influence. The last thing that those people want to do on a regular basis is be asked to use their influence by somebody who's supposed to be there to help them, right? Exactly. So, Absolutely. So, and, yeah. and I think that that's something that a lot of people who are in our position forget. And I'm not working with professional baseball players as frequently as you are, so I'm not suggesting we're in the same position. What I mean, though, is that when, when you have an influential athlete in front of you, of course, there's opportunity there for you, the coach, if that athlete tells the world that you work with them. But that athlete isn't working with you so that they can tell the world that they work with you. They're doing it because they think that you bring them value. And as soon as you stop doing that and taking value from them, you become less attractive to those athletes. So I think that you explaining that in such an eloquent way allows should allow people to understand if you want to work with elite athletes if you want to work with the with the tip of the spear you need to work for them instead of asking them to work for you always they're going to work for you eventually without you asking them would you agree that that's accurate yes yes but you have to earn their respect right, right. you earn their respect and trust and you, uh, if if and when, like I have a new book coming out, right? And if and when I actually ask an athlete for a favor, it, it happens so few and far between that, you know, because I don't ask them for I'm there to provide things for them, not to ask them um, for things. And so when I do actually ask them, hey, you know, would you mind saying something? Would you mind checking out my book and saying something about it or, you know, something like that? I, I don't they don't say no because I haven't, you know, we've had a years and years long relationship and I haven't asked for anything. And in fact, they don't know, but I'm sure they assume I've deflected so much from people reach out to me and ask the weirdest things. Like I worked with Timmy Thomas from the Boston Bruins for pretty much his entire career. And um, we were in sports illustrated together and it was just, we had the coolest, most awesome friendship. There would be times he would show up for a session and be like, would you rather go fishing? You know, like it was a great relationship, but I didn't, I, I didn't 
you know, I wasn't out there constantly telling people about it, but he did. He told people that he worked with me. He told people that he felt like it was a game changer. And so I would get these weird emails from people. This was the weirdest one yet. Someone knew he was originally from Minnesota. They emailed me and they said, hey, you know, we're putting together a foursome, um, uh, you know, for a round of golf. And we'd really like him to play with us. Could you give me his contact info so that we could invite him out to play golf with us? It's a really nice course. And I'm, I didn't even respond to that when it was like, holy moly, really? <laughs> um, but people will try to give me jerseys and say, can you get this signed? Or can you get a ball signed? Or can you, do, or I have a, sometimes when it's a really important charity, but like, it'll be, and if it's someone that I know, but I get people who I, who don't know me, who reach out and say, you know, we're having this event. Can you get any of the players you work with to, to sign a ball or to donate this or that? And I'm like, you know, you don't know them. You don't know me. I mean, you might as well just try to go directly to them. Why are you? Call their agent. Right. It's just, it, it can be really rough. Um, and, uh, but then, you know, the players are social media, like I said, is so weird. I have this love hate relationship with it, but I, I had done, I had done this, um, just for fun on social media. I did this, uh, um, a pistol squat balancing on the handle of a kettlebell mm-hmm. and Josh Donaldson from the Toronto blue Jays. We were in the weight room one day and he was like, Oh my gosh, on Twitter data, you did that crazy thing on the kettlebell. I saw you. And, um, and you know, he's amazing and he's got, I don't know how many followers, way more than I do. And, and he said, I loved it. And I'm like, wait a minute, you liked my tweet about that. And so I brought it up and I'm like, really? Cause it doesn't say that you even liked it. <laughs> and he was like, no, I like it. So, so he's not even thinking like that. Right. And I didn't need him to promote me. And he's like, I'm going to retweet it right now. I didn't ask for that. There was nothing like that, but he retweeted it, you know, and I got like a zillion followers from that. It was crazy. But th- that's, that's how organically these things tend to happen. I'm, you know, it's just, yeah. well, I think, so I think weird. that there's a, I think that there's a difference between, what you're doing and what people want to be doing and, and, and people need to understand you, you're professional. When you, when you go work with a team like the Orlando magic, you're not flying out there on your own dime. You're not doing it for free just so that you might get some exposure. You're doing it because they value you and they're paying you to do your job. So you're not going to say, Hey, in exchange for me doing this for free, could you make a post about me doing it so that somebody else might pay me? And I think that that's how a lot of people look at it is if I get with an elite athlete, I'll work with them for free and they're going to tell everybody I work with them. And then other people will want to work with me too. And that's real in some cases. And you know, that's how, that's how we got started. I was reaching out to athletes and saying, I want to help you. Um, But now it's not, you know, now it's, this is our service. You know, and, and so I think that people just would stand to help themselves by understanding that if you just deliver value to somebody else without asking for anything in return, if you deliver enough value, someone will be compelled to return the favor. Right. Um, right. And then you just have to also, you have to weigh the, you know, what, what, it, how much value is there in that asking for that post and then turning someone off? Right. Versus building a relationship and having something happen organically. You know, I, I know how we can get kind of locked into that. I have to post something every single day and I have to keep growing my following. And, 
but you can't lose perspective. You really can't. And actually, I think some teams are getting used to, especially in my realm. It's so funny because I own all the URLs for yoga for sports, yoga for football, yoga for baseball, because it didn't exist. When I started this, this was like, this was new. There weren't people out there. There weren't, I, I didn't really have competition. There were maybe a handful of people that were doing it with teams. And there wasn't really, again, I'm like old and jerk. So there wasn't really social media. <laughs> I didn't think Facebook existed then. It's insane. But, um, but now there are all these people. Like, it's so funny to look at the hashtag for yoga for baseball. And there are tons and tons of people who are out there and they're specialists and experts. And, um, and, and uh, teams are getting used to getting because the, the strength coaches will forward me all the emails that they get um, from people who want to work with the team for free in exchange for a post. So I had one really prominent team that I did ultimately end up working with, but they initially um, came to, this was like four years ago. They came to me and they said, Hey, listen, you know, we're cost conscious, which is laughable because they were paying some of their athletes like 20 million a year, but we're cost conscious. So we're, you know, we're willing to do this with you. We'll, we'll um, let you use our name and say that you worked with us in exchange for um, making these videos for us to use in season. And I said, respectfully, I'll have to decline because I can use the name of the 40 other teams that I worked with who paid me for my services, but thank you anyway. And they did end up coming back to me and saying, okay, we'll pay you. But <laughs> I just, it's funny out there, huh? But so, so how did, how, you know, you got started before the Facebook and before the Instagram, which means that there was less competition, but it also means that there was less means to reach out to somebody. It was, it wasn't as easy to just say, oh, I want to reach out to Dana Santos. Let me send her a direct message on her Instagram. And if she doesn't get back to me, I'll send her 30 more until she sees it or doesn't, right? So how did yeah. you start getting the, the, how did you expose yourself to these teams and to these professionals to the point that they started taking you seriously? Who did you reach out to? Um, I reached out to, and if anybody who's listening to this has followed me, they've heard me say this on other podcasts because this is, this is what you have to do. And you know, we talked about Rachel. Rachel understands the hustle and the work that you have to put in. And it, you know, the, the Instagram DM pissed me off, to be completely honest. I don't answer a lot of them because just because you took 30 seconds to use your thumbs and send me a message asking me a question that's going to take me about 20 minutes to thoughtfully answer. I, seriously, come on. You don't respect my time. You don't value me. Also, I've written, I don't know, over 60 articles. Do a search and you'll find an answer to your freaking question. Like that one, I'm a nice person, but when I get those, I, I, I want to kill someone. So, because when I was starting out, you know what I did? I spent, I don't know, probably 80 hours researching all of the teams. I, 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 all of the teams in the four major sports that I currently work in, the NHL, the NBA, and, uh, NFL and MLB. And I um, found out who the head coach or manager was. I found out who the head of strength and conditioning was, the head athletic trainer. And I picked three players that were decent players, but who also had an injury history. I looked up their injury history. I looked up what schools they went to. I looked up who, like, who they had a history of knowing, what other teams they were at. I then wrote personalized letters to every 
single one of them. And I also had self-published a book back then that nobody should read because I've learned so much more since then. But at the time, it was the body of work that I had, right? It was called Yoga is Not One Size Fits All. And I took that book and I mailed that book with earmarked pages that were earmarked specifically based on the information I found out about them with that letter to every single team to, so that was um, head coach, head athletic trainer, head strength coach, and three players on every team in all four major sports. And I had previously been head of marketing and public relations for an international corporate real estate firm. So I knew a lot about marketing and I knew a lot of about return on a direct mail because I would be considered a direct mail, you know, through the snail mail process. And it cost me quite a bit of money, um, not only the cost of my book, but also to mail these packages. I also had, um, I had like a sweat towel that had my logo on it. Um, and, and I sent that as well to every single team. And you sent it what to the, to the corporate offices? I sent it to the stadium to the, I looked up the addresses and it wasn't easy to find all this information. Right. I didn't DM anyone, you know, <laughs> I spent, when I tell you, I spent hours, like I spent hours and hours and hours and hours on this and um, a decent direct mail return is like 3%, right. To get a 3% response. I got 35 to 37% response. My phone was ringing and professional athletes were calling my cell phone. Like they were, they had never received anything like this. Strength coaches were calling. No one had ever received anything so thoughtfully like written out. It wasn't a form letter. It was, this was like, I, I took the time and that's how a lot of these relationships started. Like people are like, how do you have such great relationships in professional sports? Well, A, I don't burn bridges and B, I take the freaking time. I take the time to get to know these people. I respect them. They're doing a job. Like think about it. A strength coach in major league baseball has one of 30 jobs in the world. That's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. Like they deserve my respect. They worked for that job. They didn't direct message the GM and say, Hey, can I come work for you? Like it didn't work that way. They earned that job. And so they, they earned my respect before I even met them because I knew what they'd gone through to get to that point. So they, the first person though, who called me and this was hilarious because I was in Boston um, was Terry Francona because he's the manager of the, of the Red Sox at the time. And so Terry Francona calls me now. Um, I can't really be a fan of any one team at this point, but back then I was a fan of the Boston Red Sox, a big time fan. And, and, and it's, if you know anybody from Boston, you know that Boston is a drinking town with a baseball problem. And, um, and so I was one of those people and, and, um, Carrie Francona has a very distinct accent and my friends had mimicked that accent forever. Like it's just, everybody knew Boston or baseball in Boston. So Terry Francona calls me and it's his accent. Clearly it's Terry Francona or, is it? Is it my friend mimicking Terry Francona? So of course it's going to be my friend mimicking Terry Francona because I can't believe he would be calling me. So I can't repeat on the podcast what I said because I basically thought someone was effing with me. And that's what I said. Those were my first words to Terry Francona was stop effing with me. And, uh, and so, and from that point forward, we had a great friendship, uh, <laughs> but I ended up working with Terry and, um, and then, uh, you know, I, I, that was my in with the Red Sox. And then after that, I ended up working with all four um, Boston teams. I worked with, I had mentioned Timmy Thomas from um, the Boston Bruins, and they won the Stanley Cup. So it was very cool. I got to go to the Stanley Cup party. I worked with the Celtics. 
um, and uh, who am I forgetting? Oh, and I had I didn't work with the Patriots directly where the team paid me. I worked with two of the Patriots players. Um, and who then moved on to other teams and I continued to work with them at other teams. So that was, that was cool. And that really got me into the NFL. But, um, but I had like work done called me. He was with the Atlanta Falcons then. I mean, and I remember that phone call because, um, I, I just, I was getting so many phone calls from athletes that it got to a point where I, um, I was having trouble keeping track of who I had sent stuff to. And so I had this conversation with work done and then I get to the end and I say, um, can you tell me who this is again? <laughs> Needless to say, I did not end up working with work done. <laughs> but um, it was, and I, I'm laughing about that because I'm mortified. That was horrible. <laughs> but, uh, I never expected that I, my phone was just going to ring and ring and ring. And then the Tampa Bay Rays then called and brought me, flew me down for spring training. Um, and, uh, and then the strength coach from the Tampa Bay Rays at the time was Kevin Barr and Kevin introduced me to all of the other strength coaches that were, um, at all the other teams at, during spring training. And so I basically ended up going from camp to camp to camp when I wasn't working with the Rays and establishing relationships with them, which is why then I worked with the Cleveland Indians and Tim Maxey was the strength coach there then. And Tim is now the head of strength and conditioning for all of major league baseball. So see how these relationships really mattered. And mm -hmm. if I had, if I had been an idiot <laughs> and been there and been like, look, Tim, take pictures with me and look at I'm at the Indians. And like, nobody knows that I did all this stuff. Everybody thinks I'm like, now that social media exists and I actually do post pictures, I think people think I'm like this overnight success. But mm -hmm. 14, 15 years ago, I wasn't taking pictures with these guys. I was establishing relationships and I was learning. And Tim Maxey introduced me to Greg Cook. And um, his, well, not directly. Now I do know Gray, which is awesome. But he said, have you read any of Gray Cook's stuff? And I'm like, who's that? Because remember, I was a yoga person. So I, while I was in Florida, because I was down here for three weeks, I ordered Gray's book and had it sent to my hotel. And I read his book. And that was such a huge game changer. I'm like, this is like yoga, except it actually talks about biomechanics. And it makes way more sense. And it's a better application. And so that really started to change things. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he assesses people. And so I created an assessment and it just, it grew from there, but I was constantly learning. So all of these people I, I was meeting, I listened more than I talked, where instead of coming in and being like, hey, I'm a yoga expert. I want to work with you. It's like, hey, I think there's something here, you know, applying yoga to baseball. Tell me what you think. And that got me far more, um, doors open and if I had tried to kick them down. Well, so that's, that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about when you were telling me about these letters that you wrote, because first of all, I think that that's amazing. I want to commend, like I, you don't need my commendment if that's even a real word, but it's, it's, it's very cool that you spent all that time, not just looking up who you need to send stuff to, but where to send it and learning about the people so that you could send something personalized. I mean, the people who are listening to this, you need to understand that that means that a team that has three players, the strength coach and the manager got five different letters, five yeah, and books. And the head athletic trainer. And they have, so six different letters, <laughs> six books with earmarked pages in them differently. Mm -hmm. You know, multiply that by 30, by 120 or so teams over the course of four leagues. That's, you know, 800 something letters. That's a lot of work. 
that, that people are not willing to put in that even today would probably be a valuable thing to do. Um, but the question that I have for you about that is when I've talked to strength coaches, to CrossFit coaches, to, you know, doctors for teams, whoever it is that we're talking with, one of the things that I need to be really careful of is not to come across as though I know something that they don't. So how did you have the conversation with these people in a way that it seems that you have this problem that you haven't been able to solve? And I think I might be able to help you solve it without making the innuendo that they don't know what they're doing. Um, just exactly the way you kind of stated it, which is, you know, I, I think there's something to this. As I look at strength and conditioning programs, it, it just doesn't seem like um, uh, this kind of movement, which I'm finding a lot of value in, you know, personally and with the clients that I'm working with, I'm not seeing that a lot in your programs. And, and I think it could add value, but not saying, I know it can add value. I know, like I've seen letters that strength coaches have shared with me from other yoga instructors who were like, this can add 10 miles per hour. This is a right. story. 10 miles per hour to so-and-so's fastball. Really? And it, that noise was me doing right. the, you know, face palm. Uh, but like, come on, that's not that's not true. And where'd you get that information? Um, and so, so it was more about me asking questions, me saying, I think this could add value because I'm seeing it in the populations I'm working with, but I've never really truly worked with your population. I would love the opportunity to learn from you and to figure this out, you know, because I do know, I know this, I know yoga at this point, you know, like, this is what I know. This is, I've, I've, this is what I've been doing. Do you, do you think this could work? It's, it's and the good news is I write better than I talk. So the letters were, were much more concise and, um, and, and better stated, but I was very careful with the language to be saying, you know, I have this body of knowledge and, and experience here. I think there might be a fit but I, you know, what do you think kind of thing? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's um, disarming. And, yeah. And like, and here are examples of where I think it could fit. Check out my, in my book, like, you know, I know that, um, ham, tight hamstrings can be an issue. Um, but a lot of times that's tied to the inability to hip hinge properly and look at, look at these exercises in here that really work on, the hip hinge, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, things like that. No, that's very cool. We, we had a, um, a baseball player fly up from Louisiana during the off season and he was experiencing low back and shoulder pain. And, you know, it was okay. We, we just, just to, to speak to exactly the point that you just made and to make a long story short, they had worked on his shoulder and he had worked on his low back and all, they, they had done everything to the areas of complaint. And when we assessed him, we determined that, you know, his straight, he couldn't straight leg raise more than 40 degrees. And, you know, he, he was like, you know, this, tell me how much weight he squats and deadlifts. And I said, you haven't, you haven't done any squats yet because he hadn't gotten below depth on a squat and he couldn't pull a barbell from the floor without rounding his back because he didn't have access to that range of motion. And when we watched him pitch, he would fall off the mound to the side because he wasn't willing to land over his front foot and hinge over his front leg because he didn't have the range of motion. So it was, well, of course his back is going to hurt. And of course his shoulder is going to hurt because he's exposing it to more force than he needs to when he rotates out of the way. So I think that, you know, the point that you just made about not knowing how to hinge 
being the reason why the hamstring isn't lengthening is important and it extrapolates to all different types of movement because it's not just your hamstring isn't flexible, so stretch it. There's a, there's a reason why yeah. it's not moving. Right. But you, you yeah, say, and in so many cases, you can um, you can do more damage by stretching. Like if if you were to look at a guy who has um, you know who's stuck in an excessive anterior pelvic tilt. And then, and say, obviously that person would have tight hamstrings, but they're not tight the way that people think they're tight, where they need to be stretched. They're lengthened and inhibited by the tilt of the pelvis. So if you try to stretch them anymore, now you're going into an area of, I don't know, ripping them. Yeah, you know? risk, high risk. Right. But so, so, so you just recently wrote Practical Solutions for Back Pain Relief. And that book comes out, what, in January? Yes, January 23rd it ships. You can pre-order it now. Now, now when, when, when in that book, are you talking about topics like what we're discussing right now so that people can look at themselves and say, oh, I always thought I had tight hamstrings, but it turns out that they only feel tight because they're already at end range all the time. Is that something you talk Ab- about? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and and it's really about it. the whole practical thing. Practical is a very important word in this because it's – it doesn't have to be so complex that you feel like you should be putting your back pain into someone else's hands. It's about empowering people to understand that this is your body. And there is, there's no excuse for knowing more about the apps on your iPhone than about the function of your spine and the muscles of your back, especially if you have pain, come on, put in the time and it doesn't have to be a ton of time. So I break it down and, and it is a little more simple than if I'd written it for um, the population that I tend to work with, you know, and if I, if I'd written this more for strength coaches, it would be, a, I, I would take it to another level, but I want the people in the general population who tend to blame their back for things and then um, go to the doctor and, and say, I'm at my wit's end, I'm ready for surgery, you know, that kind of thing. I, I want those people to understand that, it doesn't take as much effort as you think to get out of pain. So here are some solutions for, depending on what your issue is, let's figure out, you know, what works for you. Because back pain doesn't have one magic pill. Back pain has myriad causes. So you have to figure out what is causing your back pain and what's going to work for you. And so I kind of spell out, not kind of, I definitely, I spell <laughs> out, you know, here are exercises that could work. So let's check them out. And see if these exercises help you get out of pain. Because that's the first step. Let's get you out of pain so now you can start to work through a functional range of motion. Because movement is the answer. All, there is um, increasing research that's showing us that passive approaches to back pain don't work. Regardless of the issue. Because even when you have, and I have herniated this. And I, and it, it, it Welcome to the club. me up. Right. That's it. The club. It cracks me up when people are like, oh, I can't I can't lift anymore. I have herniated discs. And I'm like, I have sick <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and I still lift and I move every day, you know, and it's not a herniated disc. is not a death sentence. The reason your disc became herniated in the first place is probably because you've had dysfunctional mu- muscle firing patterns supporting movement in that area. So if you retrain the muscles to support your spine, guess what? The herniated disc is not a problem anymore, right? I mean, there can be issues with nerve impingement, and I don't want to belittle that. It can be an issue, but in most cases, we, if we correct the movement pattern 
and then keep you moving functionally, you're going to be good. And so that's the point that I try to make with, without being so nasty about it like I just was. Well, but but you, there's, you need to be truthful, right? I mean, I, I've, I've seen right. studies that say up to 50% of people who have herniations will never find out because they'll never be acute enough to go get an MRI. And, and what that says is that just because you have a disc herniation doesn't mean that you can't X, Y, Z. It means, that, it means right. that you can't X, Y, Z until you have figured out why your disc herniation is symptomatic and address that dysfunction. So, exactly. So, that, I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's kind of um, – and also you said that you wrote the book in, in simpler terms than you would have if you were writing it for doctors and strength coaches. But I think that there's a lot of value for doctors and strength coaches to read books that are written in simple terms because their patients are coming to them and their clients are coming to them and they need to be spoken to in simple terms. One of the yeah. things that um, – that always kind of <clears throat> surprises me when I when I have conversations with doctors about patients that they've had or who are now coming to see me or consulting with me about what's going on with them because their doctor didn't give them the solution that they wanted. And then I reach out to the doctor to ask them what they were trying to do. So see if there's maybe something lost in translation. Most of the time there is. Most of the time the doctor is not telling them the wrong information. It's that the doctor isn't telling them the information in a way that the person can understand or that the person didn't tell the doctor what they're looking to solve, what their problem is in a way that the doctor can understand. It's the person who says, my back hurts when I lift heavy weights. I need to get rid of this back pain. Well, the doctor's going to tell you to stop lifting heavy weights, but you need mm -hmm. to, you need to tell the doctor, I want to be able to lift heavy weights without back pain. Can you help me do that? And now the doctor doesn't have the out of saying, yeah, sure. Just don't lift heavy weights. Cause that wasn't in the question. Um, so I think that, um, I don't want to say that you minimized the value of the book being written in simple terms, but I want to make sure that people understand that a book in simple terms to me is often more valuable than a book in clinical terms. So it's something that I'd be interested in reading. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, yes. And, and I do think it, it does help us relate to our clients. Um, and, uh, and, and that's, it's supposed to be relatable for anyone, but yes, it'll, it'll help us relate to our clients. And, and it really spells out, as I said, like there's, there are three phases. There's the um, phase of let's get you out of pain. So let's figure out what works to get you out of pain. The middle phase is let's, you know, let's retrain functional movement um, to, to help keep you out of pain. And then the last phase is maintenance. Now, you know, now we know what works. So what are the, what are the things that we're going to do to maintain it? And it doesn't mean that it's this, you know, hour long program every day. It's some exercises a few times a week. It's also just having that awareness. So now when you get a twinge, you know, you're armed with, I know if I start to feel this kind of pain, this is how I get rid of it. And then this helped me strengthen before. So mm -hmm. that instead of popping a pill, and making a doctor appointment. Well, and the, the other thing too that I think people don't understand is that we're always working on a continuum of injured to performance. So when we're working to get closer to performance, we're working to get further from injured. And it's it's there's, there's never a reason to say, I don't have any pain, I can stop working on this. Because if you're not working on it, you're working towards pain. You're working towards your problem. That's um, an excellent point, yes. Yeah. I like to tell patients, you know, oftentimes people will say, I feel better. I don't know if I need to keep doing this. And I say, well, you felt better right before you didn't. You were, you know, you were standing next to a cliff wearing a blindfold and a big gust came and you fell off. Now you're back on the cliff, but the blindfold is still on. You really want to just take the chance? What a great analogy. Yes. 
Um, yeah. But so, so one of the things that, that you talk about a lot that I've really become interested in lately, I actually even interviewed uh, Dr. Blisa Vranich, I'm not sure if you know anything about her, is, is breathing and how important breathing through your diaphragm is, breathing intentionally is, having a breathing practice is. Um, and I've talked to people, especially new moms, about the idea of um, the diastasis recti part of the issue that you have with that tearing after childbirth, and I'm, I don't want to get too into the weeds, is that we need to relearn how to breathe so that we can develop the appropriate pressure through your midsection so that you can actually use your abdominal muscles the way they're meant to be used in sequence with one another. And the diaphragm, by the way, is one of them. But that's something that falls really, it's a hard thing to get across because people are like, how is this really going to make me a better athlete? I should get up and just start moving. So can you speak oh, to the oh. importance of, of breath and breath work? <laughs> yes, I absolutely can. Um, because, I, I mean, people who follow me on a regular basis know that, uh, for me, breathing is, it is the be-all, end-all. I mean, it is, uh, the diaphragm is the king of the core. And, um, and breathing is the most fundamental movement pattern that we have. And it doesn't mean that breathing is always the only answer, but it's definitely the place to start. Because if you don't correct the breathing, it's something that we're doing up to 24,000 times a day. It's, there is no other controllable movement pattern that we have besides blinking. But I, I mean, we're sleeping. Um, so actually, I wonder how many times we really do blink during the day. But anyway, blinking doesn't have as much of an impact. Breathing is, is the, um, the only controllable uh, movement pattern that we do as much as we do. So you could, like with shoulders uh, is a good example because breathing has a massive impact on our, our um, shoulder mobility and stability and function. So let's say you have a shoulder issue and you train your shoulder functionally for three hours a day. You're going to, because you're going to retrain the pattern so that it's functional but 24 hours a day, you have a dysfunctional breathing pattern that puts your rib cage in the position it needs to be in to facilitate and compensate, right, for that, um, that dysfunctional breathing pattern. So what's going to win every single time? The bad breathing pattern is going to win. So you're going to have to keep doing your three hours of functional shoulder training over and over and over and over and over again, right? Because it's never, it's, you're never going to be able to supersede a breathing pattern that happens 24 hours a day. So why not start there? Because the quality of your breathing is going to dictate the position of your rib cage and how your ribs move. That's, we talk about T-spine. Oh, I'm working on my T-spine rotation, but you're not thinking about your breathing and you're not integrating breathing with your T-spine rotation. How does that make sense considering where your ribs attach to your thoracic spine? Um, your your ribs are designed to move. There's a reason that there's a split um, in your rib cage in the front um, and where the diaphragm attaches. And when you inhale, your ribs should um, externally rotate. And, and everybody, not everybody, but too many people, even though it was a well-intentioned cue, too many people focus on movement of the belly. And they talk about belly breathing. And and that's another one that kind of sets me off. I get really pissed because unfortunately, if we focus on the belly and this movement of the belly out, we don't focus on the movement of the ribs. And the movement of the ribs go in sync with the diaphragm. The diaphragm isn't moving the belly out. The diaphragm 
it, it can't function unless the ribs move. The ribs have to externally rotate, which flattens the diaphragm. The diaphragm moves down. On the exhale, the ribs have to internally rotate to form that zone of opposition, that cage for the diaphragm to then be able to dome in. And that's where most people are missing that. If you have ribs that are just stuck pretty much in a flared um, position and they don't move, then your diaphragm can never relax. Just like any other muscle in your body, if that muscle was never allowed to relax, it would be pretty dysfunctional and pissed off. And here we go with this primary muscle that's the primary muscle of our core, right? Also influences our pelvic floor, but it's part of that fundamental movement pattern that we talked about that dictates your rib cage position. Your rib cage takes up almost 50% of your axial skeleton and attaches to your spine. So I can't see why anyone would not understand how paramount the quality of your breathing is. I, I, I think a lot, I think a, a big reason why people have such a problem with it is because they can't tangibly make a change to it. It's not like adding 10 pounds to your back squat and, and saying, wow, I, I PR my back squat by 10 pounds this week. Oh wait, but Hey, no, I have parlor tricks and I have to tell you that. Um, and, and I'll, I'll tell you why I call them parlor tricks, but I can, I can get somebody to have um, a significant increase in internal shoulder rotation in like 90 seconds with, with five correctly done breaths. And I do this when I go teach um, breathing biomechanics seminars, like when I'm on the Perform Better Summit or at NSBA or wherever I'm speaking and I do these parlor tricks and I get buy-in. But it's not even just there. I'll do it with teams. If I'm working with a group of athletes, I'll grab, especially if it's baseball, I'll grab two pitchers and I'll say, okay, come on up here. We're going to do, um, we're going to test your internal shoulder rotation. And I don't measure it. It's just so everybody can see it. They can feel it. So you see where the arm is. And then we're going to take five breaths together and I'm going to get your ribs to move and your diaphragm to function during those breaths. Five breaths in a bridge on the floor. And a lot of this, I took eight PRI classes. Um, so I, I don't want to make it seem like I, you know, invented this. The movements that I use and the techniques I use, I've, I've had to create um, to adapt to the environments that I work in because I'm not an athletic trainer. I don't put guys up on, a, on an athletic training table. You know, I don't have the luxury of that amount of time. I'm in a weight room, you know, weights are crashing around us. I don't, I can't have them blowing up balloons. If I tried to get guys to blow up balloons in weight rooms, they'd probably kick me out. I can't do that kind of stuff. And I have tons of respect for PRI because like I said, absolute game changer. It was my friend, Eric Cressy, who introduced me to it like seven years ago. I took my first course and then eight courses later, I was like, oh, I think I might finally understand this because it's very complex. So I had to put it in simplest terms. And so my simplest terms now are, I know how to, in five breaths, get ribs moving and then significantly change internal shoulder rotation so that when we retest it after the five breaths, everybody in the room goes, holy shit, how did that happen? <laughs> right? And then I have their attention. And now all that stuff I just spit out at you about why breathing is so important, they're listening and trying to process it and saying, hey, wait a minute. And then I have another exercise that I do that takes probably about two minutes. It's a modified side. Um, well, do you, mind, do, you mind if I, do you mind if I ask you a question about the first one? The first breathing exercise? In just a second. Let me, because I, I have it. Uh, to lose my train of thought. So I want to throw this one out here because this is huge. It's hip internal rotation. I show them how moving their ribs um, with a breathing exercise and a strengthening exercise at the same time will then translate to increased internal hip rotation. 
And that one, that one, um, one of the uh, catchers for one of the MLB teams that I work with called that a drop the mic moment. He's like, that's it. You just, you do that and you drop the mic because now they see they went from, we, we just do a basic, it's not even like a real test. It's just an exercise where you sit back and you kind of butterfly your knees back and forth to see how your internal hip rotation feels, where your knee falls. Then we do the fester size, which like I said, takes about two minutes. It focuses on breathing, getting your internal obliques, external obliques to, um, to turn on ribs to come in back and down. And then we come back and retest internal shoulder or internal hip rotation. And there's, Unless there's a massive impingement issue or some kind of um, anomaly happening, there's a change. There's a change. And usually there's a change, too, in how it feels where someone will say, I had clicking or I had pain or I, and it's gone. And, and they're like, how did you do that? So again, I get their attention, but let's go back to your question. Well, so the question's relevant for both of those tests um, or for both of those, those parlor tricks that you mentioned is the, yeah. is the concept of those, of that procedure, let's call it in both cases yeah. to, to demonstrate that if we can get your ribs moving like this on a regular basis, this is how your joints will move on a regular basis. Is that, is that the yeah. idea? Yes, that's why I call it a parlor trick, because I let them all know, listen, as soon as you get up and walk away from me, your old breathing pattern is going to take back mm -hmm. over. Your rib cage position is going to change. You didn't own that. You don't own that, what we just did. You, you have to work to own that. Right. But just like you're currently owning the dysfunctional breathing pattern that's got your body in the position that it's in, you could own this one. And you can own this one for only right, yeah. <laughs> you know, like an investment of five minutes a day for the next two weeks. Because in my experience, it's been two sets of those five breaths in a bridge position, like five to seven times a week for two weeks. And then they own it. That's you, not a huge investment. Do you teach that technique in the book? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's a primary, it's, it, yeah. And I tell them it's a primary technique that I use with every single human being that I work with. There's, there's no, it's not like, oh, this is only good for, you know, PGA players or no, this is your human being and you breathe. And especially if you have chronic pain, this is where we start. And like I said, it's not always the only answer, but you know what? Sometimes it is, which is crazy. But then other times, this is now we've got a good pattern here and now we can really see where the dysfunction lies because we cleared up the breathing mm -hmm. and now we can see if there really is tension because I'll get yoga instructors who will contact me. I'd probably get an email like this once a week where they say, Hey, what are your best shoulder stretches? None. Right. <laughs> I don't stretch the shoulder. The shoulder is the most shallow mobile joint in the body. Like there is no reason to stretch the shoulder joint. It's designed to be super mobile. So all you, if there's tension there, you have to figure out where it's coming from. And generally, I mean, if your rib cage is jacked up and you're having to breathe through your neck and chest because you're not using your diaphragm, then that means that your pecs are going to be tight. All of these things are going to be turning on up to 24,000 times a day. So if we turn them off and we give them back to their primary role, which is what I do when I do that parlor trick, is we get the diaphragm to work and we don't have to compensate with all these other muscles, they immediately relax. They don't need to be stretched. If you stretch them, they're still going to come back to whatever, you know, to, to breathe for you um, if you don't correct the breathing. So you correct the breathing and then you don't need to stretch them. 
really yeah. don't. And usually it's not about stretching. It's about activation and inhibition. So if you want to, if you want to, um, release tension in one area, figure out what it's compensating for, you know, and figure out what is the opposing muscle. Is that one working? Right. Because usually if one's turned on all the time, the other one can't turn on. So let's see if we can activate that one and turn this one off. It makes way more sense than just trying to stretch. I know stretching feels good and that can be part of a whole restorative and recovery process, but that's not the answer to fixing movement. So where, one of the things that we want to incorporate in our program for our athletes, our programs, our interventions is better breathing mechanics. Where would you recommend somebody like me or somebody like anyone in the world who wants to learn, go to learn how to develop these, these strategies for themselves? Well, I mean, I, I do believe that PRI, cause it, it was a game changer for PRI me. Postural, I, postural Restoration Institute. Postural Restoration Institute, taking the respiration course. Um, they have wonderful instructors. It's just now for you, I mean, it's, it's higher level information. Mm-hmm. So for you, you'll do awesome with it. But um, for me, like my, I took my first respiration course, like I said, like seven years ago. And I was in there with my phone, like trying to Google things like what's a brachial chain. Like I didn't, I was a yoga instructor. I didn't right. have my PSCS then. So I didn't know, you know, my, my brain was on fire. I think smoke was coming out of my ears as I was trying to figure all this out. Um, and I've talked to a lot of people, really smart people who've taken those courses and been like, yeah, I, there was so much information I retained like 10%. Mm-hmm. And so that's why in the seminars that I teach, um, I try to distill it down to something that you can walk out and be armed with something so you can help people. And I get really excited at these, um, at like it perform better. I mean, I get 75 minutes and 75 minutes, we can cover a lot when you, you simplify it. And you know what? For most people, breathing doesn't have to be so complex. You know, if you're not a doctor, if you're not like with you, you're you're in the position where I feel like if you took a postural restoration institute course, you'd be like, oh my gosh, this is this is so huge for my practice. But for a lot of other people who are in the same kind of um, like venues that I am, uh, you know, like weight rooms and, and gyms and they're doing personal training and that kind of thing. They need to just be armed with enough information that they can convey it to their clients and get them as excited as I am. Because here's what I feel like. If, if you could have the best exercise, the most perfect exercise for someone that's very complex that you can guide them through. But if you can't get compliance because they don't understand it and it's too complex. And so they're going to only see you once a week and they're going to come back and they're only going to do it with you once a week because they couldn't do it the rest of the time or they wouldn't. Right. Then what does it matter? So I try to create exercises that are going to create compliance and you're, I'm never going to hurt someone. Could I maybe could, could they do better if they had some more nuance added to that exercise? Probably. But if you added that to it, and then they didn't do it. What is it? Yeah, is but and, and that's that's the whole adage of the best program is the one someone sticks to. That's it. So that's what I try to do. As I try to create, I I try to distill it down to exercises that work. Like I said, my parlor trick. Anybody can do that once, and it's like riding a bike. Once you feel your ribs move, because I can feel it. I'll have my hands on their ribs as we're doing the exercise, and I can tell when. Um, their upper, like their, their pecs and their scalenes, and they stop pulling the rib cage up to pull the air in. And their diaphragm actually um, does the, the, 
the function it's supposed to do and the ribs move. And I'll say to them, did you feel that? And they'll be like, yeah. And so then they do it again. I'm like, you felt that now they know. So it's like riding a bike. Mm -hmm. You can't undo what they now know it's supposed to feel like. And there's a big difference there. So now they felt it. And once they felt it, they can do it. And, And they'll know when they're not doing it correctly. And they'll come back to you and they'll be like, I can't get my ribs to move again. We try it again. And then they feel it, you know, it's, but it's not, it's not that complex. It does not have to be. And I also came up with a way to get over the blowing up the balloon as much as that can also work really, really effectively. I just have people at the end of an exhalation when they think all the air is gone. Remember the ribs have to come in back and down. If the ribs don't move, you might think all the air is gone, but your diaphragm can't relax completely. So you haven't let all the air out. So then I say, okay, and that's where blowing up the balloon comes into play. They try to blow up the balloon and that's what actually ends up pulling the ribs in and getting the diaphragm to dome. But instead of blowing up a balloon, I say, okay, I know you think all the air is gone, but without inhaling, I want you to blow out birthday candles, just, and then their abs turn on there because their, their ribs come in and they feel like they're choking because now Mm -hmm. they've let all the air out. There's nothing left. But now on that next inhale, the magic happens because the ribs came in, the diaphragm domed and relaxed. And the next inhale is initiated by the diaphragm instead of the upper body. And that's where it's like, whoa. And I call that like a diaphragm reset. These are the things that just over the years, I've just kind of figured out if we do it this way, maybe it's not perfect, but the masses can get it. And I think if we can get more people to breathe better, they're going to get out of pain. They're going to move better and they're going to feel better because we didn't even touch on all the psychological and physiological aspects of breathing. And they're profound. Well, we, we, we could talk for days, but I, 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 I want to be respectful to you. I do have two more questions for you that I'd like to okay. ask before we, before we go. And one of them is you mentioned that you speak at perform better. You've spoken at, at various different summits and, and, and um, conventions and things like that. How did you end up finding yourself speaking at those things? Are you applying for positions or are people reaching out to you and asking you to speak? It's all about relationships. I, I really haven't, um, I haven't really had to like apply for any, because people say to me, how do I market to teams? I marketed to teams that one time. Right. And now it's just meeting people doing the right thing. And and then it's just, right. Meeting. That's exactly. I wish I had said that. It's what I'm you sorry. Said. I'm sorry. You're Damn it. And doing I the right it. thing. If you do the right thing for the right reasons, then mm-hmm. it just, it works. I've met so many incredible people and it's hilarious when I hear about, you know, people who are trying to steal the teams I work with. And I'm like, unless you get a new strength coach, that strength coach is one of my best friends. You know, Mm -hmm. like at this point, these are people who come to like, we go to life events. I go to their weddings and they're not not looking for somebody different. They're not. No. Like, I I mean, unless I really screw up, I, we're just, we're building relationships. I, I count these people. I go to baseball winter meetings. This year was my, 11th year at baseball winter meetings, I think at least 10th, 10th year. I don't know. I might be adding a year there. I know it's at least 10. So at, at, at MLB baseball winter meetings, and it is like a family reunion, you know, all the, I know every strength coach for every team. Um, and, and I love those guys. I absolutely love them. And I wouldn't want to do anything that would piss any one of them off because we all know each other. And so that's, it's really important. And you always treat people 
the way that you would want to be treated. You know, you never discount them just because I don't work with, you know, a strength coach for a different team. And maybe I don't know him as well. I'm still going to treat him with the same amount of respect. Like I said, when I first reached out to these guys, I understood that they have one of 30 jobs in the entire world. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Well, it's cool. The, the last question I want to ask you is one that I've been asked on other people's podcasts that I enjoyed answering. And that is if you could take the world that we live in right now and 10 years have an impact that you want to have, what is something that is commonplace right now that you would, that people would find absurd in 10 years? For example, you know, being able to smoke on a plane 10 years ago wasn't crazy. Right. So now it's like smoke on a plane. What are you, are you kidding me? You can't smoke on a plane. So is there anything that you can think of that right now you see that's commonplace that you're like, oh man, that's why don't people understand that that's the wildest thing in the world that they're doing? Wow, this is a hard question. I mean, it's it's very interesting um, because yeah, they're like I remember being a little kid because again I'm old as dirt and and people would just if you had trash in your car they'd throw it out the window like people <laughs> would litter. That's mind blowing. Right. Um, and like you said, smoking on a plane seriously. Yeah, I flew to, um, I flew to Japan and people were smoking on the plane for fourteen hours. Oh, yeah, it was God, be, like being in one of those like bingo parlors or, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> oh, that's horrible. Um, it's just, what's cool is that so much is changing now. I'm already seeing the change happening. So like we're prioritizing rest and recovery where that was not a priority before, you know, or even if you look at baseball, how we went from, um, well, I mean, this also has a lot to do with salaries, but like when I, I first started working with Terry Francona, he had explained to me how, you know, when he played, they had to have jobs in the off season. Mm-hmm. He didn't make enough money. And so there was no like off season conditioning. Spring training was really about getting back into shape to play baseball because you'd show up and you hadn't worked out all that time. And now you're back and now you have to work out, you know? So, and that wasn't that long ago. And for eight weeks. You have eight, you have eight right. weeks to get in shape. <laughs> yeah, but it's, look at it, it's not impossible, you no. know? Um, although the shape of baseball players now versus back then is a little bit different. Yeah. Um, but I, I do I do think that, you know, that in 10 years we're going to look back and be like, how come it took us so long to understand the value of recovery, you know? The, uh, value, the value of um, of of the things that, that actually slow us down, like rest. And um, at least I hope yeah. it seems like we're going in that direction. I think so too. Then it's a conversation we have a lot working with CrossFitters a lot, and especially the elite CrossFitters, they see their friends out there doing seven workouts in a day and I'm exaggerating, but, and the conversation is you don't need to do that. You actually, you don't feel great today. It's not a great day for you to go hard. Maybe do a little recovery piece and then take the rest of the day off. And they're like, well, I, th- I feel like I need to be mentally tougher than that. I'm like, well, being mentally tough is taking the day off. It's not doing the easy thing and just working out like you automatically do. So, yeah. Oh, uh, oh, that just reminded me. Okay. Go. I have a better answer. Okay. Um, 
I think where, uh, and increasingly with teams, I'm, I'm teaching, um, mindfulness meditation and I'm teaching meditation in a way that they, again, it's based on breathing. It's not, you know, you don't have to be in a, a loincloth at the top of a mountain and, you know, doing funky things with your hands. And although we do have a really cool meditation, we do that is actually one of the most popular ones that you end up feeling like this energy between your palms. So now I know I do sound out there, but I am the least out there meditation teacher there is um because it really usually is all about the breathing but i think that meditation and the and mental health i pray that that mental health and um and training for mental health will become a priority and it will become less of a stigma too that um i think being mentally unhealthy i i hope i i in 10 years is a little aggressive, uh, not aggressive, but ambitious, but hopefully within 20 years, we're going to destigmatize that. We're going to understand because especially with all of the technology we have that's bombarding us and, and uh, making it harder for us to rest and recover, especially from a psychological standpoint, and it's impacting our physiology um, as well which, you know, the way that we think is impacted by our hormones. And you know, this, mm-hmm. and, and I, I, I think that, that people are going to start to recognize that, um, that this craziness that we're seeing increasingly, people being, um, being more prone to ADHD and being more prone to mental health issues, it's not, it's not their fault. We don't have just more crazier population. It's that, that um, we need to be able to institute um, training and recovery mechanisms for mental health and that, that mental health training will become part of healthcare. Um, that's what I'd like, I, I'd like to see because there's so much that we actually have the power to do if we understood more about it and destigmatize it. You know, you don't, you wake up and you don't feel right uh, mentally. If you feel depressed, if you feel down, there are things that we can do to actually like you don't have to just live your day like that. It's 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 just like any other. If you woke up and your your hamstrings were stiff, most of us in our field know. Well, let's foam roll and let's get some movement. Let's you know. I I don't have to go through my day and just be like, oh man, my legs hurt so bad. I have mm-hmm. I have no power over. It. Hopefully tomorrow I'll wake up. And I'll feel better, right? <laughs> yeah. Like that's not how it is. So I think it's the same thing. You wake up and. And you feel depressed and you can't quite put a finger on it. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, just try to attach it to something that's going on in their lives because that makes it more logical. When the fact is, who knows what you ate yesterday that might have impacted your physiology or, you know, there could be something at play that you don't, you might not think what you think and you have some power over it. And I'm hoping that, that people will start to understand that. And I have the privilege of getting to work with some athletes and there are so many awesome mental performance coaches and, and being able to integrate into teams that way. And so I've learned a lot um, doing that kind of work. And I, I'm hopeful that that will become more mainstream. I think, I think that's great. And I was discussing this actually with some family over, over the Christmas break, the idea that um, it's a language problem, I think. You know, people don't want to go to a therapist. People don't want to go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist because there's something you're, you have a problem if you're going to see a psychologist or a therapist. People don't want to eat fat because they don't want to become fat. 
It's the use of these words that aren't well defined, that aren't well explained through people's education process that leads them to saying, I don't want that because I don't have that problem or I don't want that problem. At least that's how I look at it. So I would love for, I love that, that idea to be absurd in 20 years. And I would love for the language to change to maybe help it. Um, Dana, I very much appreciate you coming on the show and giving us some of your time today. Um, the lessons that you gave people, if they take them to heart, you know, the idea of this podcast is for people to start to develop a process as opposed to just saying, I have a goal and I want to hit it one day because if you don't have a process to get there, you're, you're unlikely to hit that goal. So I'm hopeful that people will take the lessons that you gave today, like the, the folding back the pages in your book, the sending out 800 plus letters to different people, um, the learning, the asking questions, the building relationships, the not asking favors. I hope they'll take that to heart and that they'll be able to use it because I think it was really valuable and I appreciate you sharing it. Well, thank you so much. It was great to get to know you. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm honored that you wanted me to come on. And, and I do hope that, that people who are listening understand that you have the power to make these things happen, whether it's from, you know, breathing better so you can move better and feel better to making things happen in your careers because you took the time and you, you put in the work. And also, I hope they learn, don't direct message me. <laughs> don't direct message me and ask me some crazy important questions. Send me an email that says, hey, I searched online and I couldn't find an answer to this question. So, And I answer those emails. When people actually prove to me that they spent a little time to figure out you know, if the answer was already out there, I will answer those emails. But when you, yeah, don't DM me just like, hey, I have back pain. What do you think I should do? I don't know. Buy my book. But the other thing too is you, you wrote the book because it's going to give them the most concise answer to their question, you know? And, and that's, right. that's the thing that people forget. It's like, Oh, she just wants to sell books. It's no, because when you send the message over and over and over again, she has to ask you 50 questions before she can even start to consider what the best answer might be. Do you have ankle pain? Does your hip hurt? Do you run a lot? What was your diet like yesterday? How'd you sleep? Are you stressed? There's so much that you need to start asking before you can even consider giving a responsible answer. So instead of asking the same questions a thousand times a week, you wrote a book and let people solve the answers for themselves. So along those lines, I would ask you for your email for people, but I want them to actually spend the five minutes it will take online to find it if they have a question to ask you. Because that'll, that'll at least self-filter uh, self who's going to be sending you emails. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Dana, once again, I appreciate very much you coming on. Oh, thank you again. Thank you for listening to the Active Life Podcast today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, please make sure you head to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating so that we can grow and reach and help more people. If you're looking for more from me and my team, head to performancecarerx.com. All the help you're looking for is right there. Until next time, guys, I'm Dr. Sean